0: Afternoon, including the idea of sending the light, and that song of Into Our Hands the Gospel is Given is going to be something that we'll conclude with in just a few moments. Uh, Thankful to Him for leading us in those songs. Thankful to all of you who have participated not only this morning, if you were with us, but certainly this afternoon in our worship together. Uh, We do have many who are out this afternoon. We knew that some would be traveling to visit family and things and celebrate Father's Day with their family this afternoon, so we're grateful that you are here. I don't know. I thought everybody would be here. Gary put the pressure on me this morning, said that the Sunday afternoon lesson is always great and wonderful and exciting, and so I, I felt felt very nervous now about uh, what we're going to talk about this afternoon. But appreciate Gary's kind words and others. Um, I do attempt, knowing that of course it's afternoon and we've all eaten, most of us eaten a big meal, uh, to have something to keep us turning and studying and thinking about. And I have appreciated this word study. In fact, so much so that this summer at camp at uh, camp. Um, at East Tennessee Bible Camp, we're going to look at, have our young men lead us in a chapel thought each day, and, and I thought it'd be a good idea to give them each one word to look at. And we have a few, few who don't attend here uh, who are going to do that, but we asked Chase if he would as well, and he offered and said he'd be willing to do a, a chapel lesson, and Clayton's going to do one as well. Um, but I've been encouraged by this, even if some of the words maybe don't mean as much to us, or, or maybe we attach to as much, there are some that can give us something to think about, and that's what we've been doing now once a month. Or so for the years that we've been here, and we want to continue doing that then uh, this afternoon. We have been in one of the sections of this book that we've been studying that's been uh, titled, the section has been titled His Word. And so I know from month to month you may kind of forget uh, what some of the words are, and and I just try to remind you simply by the groupings of the words. Uh, These that we've looked at in the last four or five months have included inspiration, covenant, truth, and prophecy. And now we are up to what would be the 39th week, uh, if it were a weekly study, but 39th month or so for us, and the word gospel. Uh, When we think about the word gospel, if I ask many of you, or maybe even people on the street, about the word gospel you would probably assume that it's only a New Testament word that there's no Hebrew word or Old Testament word for us to think about because when we think about gospel we think of course about good news we think about Jesus and we think about the New Testament but we do want to notice first of all this morning that in the Hebrew Old Testament there is a Hebrew word along the pronunciation there of besora uh, that is used about four times and it's all always translated good news. Uh, I do try to keep you you know following along and turning with me so if you'd like to open up to 2 Samuel chapter 4 we're going to look at a few Old Testament passages here as we examine uh, the use and the usage of the this word in the Old Testament and in 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse number 10 uh, we're going to make mention of how it's usually used uh, in just a moment, but here there is a mention of good news, and this is the Hebrew word that is used here. If you turn to the section, you'll notice that you may, if you have a heading, that this is where Ishbosheth is actually murdered. Uh, This is not necessarily a good news passage, but what David says in verses 9 and 10 is as they actually bring the head of Ishbosheth to David, these guards who have taken his life, he says in verse 9, As the Lord lives and who has redeemed my life from all adversity, when someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. And so it's not necessarily always about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news in that way, but this idea of good news is used a few times in the Old Testament. In fact, what we would notice, and if you have your Bible, turn back a page or two to 1 Samuel 31. 1 Samuel 31 and verse number 9. This is the tragic end, of course, of Saul. He is going to be killed by his enemies. And beginning in verse number 8 of 1 Samuel 31, verse 8, So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, those who had been killed in battle, that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. Now, I know as well as you do that war and battles are a little different than they were once before. Uh, I'm amazed even sometimes in, in watching certain movies uh, that depict maybe like the uh, Revolutionary War or the Civil War, right, where everyone's lined up across from each other on a battlefield and just shooting at each other or cannons. And now, of course, it's a little different. It's more uh, guerrilla warfare or hidden, and even now with things like drones. But but you can imagine being in this position where there is a huge battle, even like World War II, you know, a battle on a front, and now they're going through and they're examining bodies. Bodies and somebody says, it's Saul. I mean, we found the leader. We have found Saul in their celebration. So verse 9 says they proclaim it. They send the good news out throughout the land that they found among the dead, the leader of the children of Israel. Here's what's interesting about the Old Testament in this word. Good news, while good news in the Old Testament is often shared with zeal or with joy, like we think about the gospel, one should carefully note that these Old Testament references generally do not allude to good news coming from the mouth of God or even from one of his representatives. For example, here, Israel's enemies share the good news about Saul's death. Somebody says, well, that's not, that doesn't sound like the gospel. That doesn't sound like Jesus. That doesn't sound like the good news of his death, burial, and resurrection. You're correct. It is often spread with joy in the same way that we would share the gospel, but it's not usually associated coming from the mouth of God or one of his prophets or one of his representatives. It's simply some type of good news that someone is sharing. So, of course, as we want to make application for us and think about the word the way it's used in the New Testament, us living under the New Testament, under the Christian age, then let's turn over and think about that a little bit. When we look to the New Testament, there is a... Greek word that is used and what's interesting is this word is also used in the Greek Old Testament in the Greek translation of the Old Testament this is the same word that is used and it is pronounced euangelion is and you see here the idea of either gospel or evangelism almost you kind of see a little bit of these ideas but this is used over 70 times in the New Testament 70 times euangelion is used to talk about the gospel and the nature of the gospel, to describe the gospel. And we've talked about the Old Testament being different. In the New Testament, it has a more specialized meaning. There is no doubt about that. That is absolutely true. In fact, when we go through, and we don't have time to take a full survey, but one reason we know that is because in the New Testament, there are all kinds of designations. Special designations, let me just toss a few out for your thinking. Matthew refers to it as the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. Paul references it as the gospel of peace or even as the gospel of the grace of God. So you see how there's special designations that go along with it. The gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of peace, or the gospel of the grace of God. And not only that, but notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, turning to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, that Paul mentions in verse number four a different gospel. So here's another designation, not the good kind, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of peace, of the grace of God, but he says there is a different gospel. He says, for if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. And there's more there in context that we won't look at, but he's warning them about a different gospel. That someone may come along as a false teacher, Sharing something different. And so they need to be on guard about that. Now, again, we don't have time to go through each usage of, of 70 times that this word is used. But you see that it's used more than just saying the gospel of Jesus Christ or the gospel. It also carries with it some special designations. Wayne Jackson is, of course, uh, a brother who's passed away a few years ago that we've made mention a lot. Uh, Jerry Corbin and I talk about him a lot because we really appreciate his commentaries and his thoughts. But in some of his writings, he describes the gospel in this way. and I'd like for you uh, to make note of it here. Four parts, if I'm not mistaken, four parts of the gospel. Number one, that the gospel reflects God's gracious, eternal plan. The first part, we might say, is that it reflects God's gracious eternal plan, not some thrown-together plan B, not some, well, you know, I guess I'll try this now because that didn't work, but this is God's grace, we love that, we do love grace, God's gracious eternal plan. Paul would write about that, of course, the idea of the eternal nature in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 3, uh, but in the encouragement, That we think about that God has had this in his mind, that the, the plan for the church, the gospel reflects God's gracious eternal plan, number one. Number two, it focuses on Christ's mission, focuses on Christ's mission. Now, I, I tried, tried not to throw faith under the bus this morning. I won't throw Travis under the bus this afternoon. But if I get Travis my slides early enough, he usually checks them and makes sure they're not running off the bottom. So this is not Travis's fault. This is mine. But it says mainly his death. Mainly his death. So the gospel reflects God's plan. It also focuses on Christ's mission, particularly his death on the cross. That's what it's really focused on. That's usually what we would think of. If I went around the room one at a time and said, tell me what the gospel is, you would talk about Christ's mission in his death. That's true. There's nothing wrong with that, but we also think about the first part. Number three, it requires that man obey the commands contained therein. So let's narrow it down a little more, right? It does deal with the death of Jesus, but it also comes from God's plan. And it's not just that God had this plan and then Jesus gave his life on the cross, but that the gospel also requires that we obey those commands. Some people, I've mentioned this before, but if you go around the country to other congregations, maybe even in this own city, you'll find some places that have said we're not going to extend The invitation anymore. We're not going to talk about it in the same way. And they may have their reasons and that kind of thing at the end of the lesson. But I would encourage you that one reason why we continue to do so here is because of this idea. You see, we can preach the good news that that God had this plan. We can preach the good news that Jesus died on the cross. But lots of people hear that and they leave it at that. The gospel number three requires that man be obedient to those commands. That's great that Jesus died, and he, he had to die. That was God's plan, but it does no good, although it does, of course, in a sense we think about eternally, but it does no good if we're not willing to obey. And then fourth and finally, that results, the plan and the death and the obedience results in both peace with God and the ability to enter into the kingdom of God. That's the gospel. I think that's a good way to sum it up. I know it's a little lengthy, maybe. It's not real succinct. But it also does a good job of summing up what all is involved. Because once again, when we obey, we don't simply obey and we're done. We don't just check a box and then God's good with us for the rest of our lives. We talk about, of course, how a Christian can fall from grace, that a person can be baptized for the remission of their sins, but then they turn their back on God and on Christ, and they are in a very serious state of disobedience. So what results from the obedience that we give is that we are able to have peace with God and we can enter the kingdom of God and we then must maintain that. That is the gospel. That is the gospel that we are trying our best to live out to the world. All of those four parts included in that. We might also say, and Wayne Jackson adds in his commentary on on Bible words, We might. this is gonna be a little more succinct. But the gospel must first of all be preached, preached. How wonderful it is that there are those who will carry good tidings, the good news to people. But let me caution you that what we sometimes mistake is we get caught up in the man who stands at the front of the auditorium with a tie on and says, we're thankful for him and let's let him work. The gospel must be preached, but it, cannot own, it does not have to only be preached by a preacher. It doesn't have to only be preached by someone who says they're ordained or that they've earned this degree or certificate or whatever. We can preach the gospel. The gospel must be preached, and there's many ways to do it. I've had two friends over the last week that have been on, on mission trips or out of the country on trips. One was involved with building houses in Central America right? A way to reach people is by meeting their physical needs. When you meet their physical needs, you can preach about their spiritual needs. Another's been involved in another uh, Latin American country dealing with, uh, dealing with missions and a little more about evangelizing and campaigning and that kind of thing. But sometimes we need to simply preach and we can do that through meeting people's physical needs, but we can't just sit silently We can't just sit back and wait for God to to sort of strike people with the gospel. The gospel must be preached. Number two, it must also be believed. How many times does it fall on deaf ears? It can get frustrating in our country to think that there are preachers every first day of the week, every Lord's Day, who proclaim the gospel, and yet millions of people are not listening it must be preached but it must also be believed number 3 we've already touched on it but it must be obeyed it requires that we become obedient but once we obey it we've not we're not done we would say finally that it must be defended do you know what's interesting about that those four things there is it's almost a cycle right defending the faith is not exactly the same as proclaiming the gospel but you understand that once you obey and you become obedient and a christian you then need to defend and one way you defend is by preaching and teaching about the bible and about christ that is the gospel and of course christ carried that out in his mission he carries it out as he is going along uh, through his life even though he's not shed his blood. He's not died on the cross. The gospel is not fully complete yet, maybe in one sense. He is also going about sharing the good news, the good news of God, the good news that God loves you, and he wants you to love him, to be his people, and he will be your God. If you have an outline in front of you, if you have the bulletin in front of you, uh, there should be a heading across the front, or across the bottom there, that talks about Paul. And I, I told Faith to leave some of the area blank because you just may want to make a list here. But when it comes to Paul and the gospel, Paul is, in, in the New Testament, it's not surprising that he is one of the writers to most frequently mention the gospel. How do we know that? Well, let's make a tally list here. Let's make a, a go down the usage. 10 times in Romans he uses this word, euangelion, the gospel, in different forms or with different designations, but 10 times in Romans, 12 times in 1 Corinthians he makes mention of the gospel. 9 times in 2 Corinthians he makes mention of euangelion of the gospel. And not only that, but 11 times in Galatians and 9 times in Philippians. Have you read Philippians lately or Galatians? Do you remember how short they are? They're sometimes just four or five or six chapters each, Philippians and Galatians, Ephesians and Colossians. And they're used other places. These are just some of the big, big places here where they're used the most. But this is Paul's gospel count. Most frequently, he is the one that references the gospel in his letters. And so, as we think about that, it must have been important to him. He must have been someone who wanted to emphasize the eternal nature of the gospel and to not turn away to a different gospel. In fact, hopefully you've had time to get that down, but Paul uses the word in all of his letters except Titus. Every letter except Titus, he mentions the word gospel. Think about the Apostle Paul for just a moment. Think about what you know about his life and how much he changed. Think about what you know about how he lived his life in such a way to try to silence those who were preaching the gospel. He tried to silence those who were following Christ. And yet here he is later having made the change and writing constantly about the gospel, the good news. Have you ever known anyone who came to become a Christian later in life. Sometimes those are the people who do the most work, who are on fire the most, as we sometimes say, for God, because they can look back and see where they were and be thankful for the chance to change and be obedient, and then they can go forward with zeal, with joy. Like we said, you know, that usually accompanies the word gospel, and that seems like the case with Paul. He cannot get enough. If someone said to him something about the gospel or about what he would share with them, that's exactly what he would want to talk about. And I think it's similar with the other apostles. In fact, I want to share with you an illustration uh, quickly here that that is used in the notes on this particular word. And it talks about the book, by Bill O'Reilly entitled Killing Jesus. Some of you may have read Bill O'Reilly's books, and he wrote several that dealt with these series of killing someone. He'd written uh, written Killing Kennedy and Killing Lincoln. And in September of 2013, he wrote the book Killing Jesus. And the book was number one on the New York Times bestseller list for nonfiction for several weeks. The sum of the book is that O'Reilly argues that Jesus died because he inter- interfered with the Romans' ability to collect taxes and did not mesh with what many of the Jews were expecting the Messiah to be. Don't we kind of acknowledge a lot of times that those are things that are true about Jesus, that the Jews expected a knight on a white horse with a sword, and that's not what Jesus was doing? But in the wake of this book, many critics have suggested that it is impossible to write about Jesus without making him seem to be a lot like us. In other words, if we're not careful, we end up with a savior that thinks and acts a lot like we do. So then they asked the question in this illustration, if those who knew the Lord best had the opportunity to tell his story, what do you think they would say? If we could go down the street in the first century there and take a microphone and put it in front of Peter's mouth or in front of Matthew's Or someone's mouth and say, tell us, what would you tell us about Jesus? What do you think they would say? And the point of the illustration is, we don't have to wonder because what is it that Peter does say? See, we can't go up to Matthew or to some of the other apostles right this moment. But Peter, after the death of Jesus, the first words that he's going to give to the crowd and to the people, we read about in Acts chapter 2. And what is his first sermon? It is the gospel It's why I talk about what the sermons are supposed to be when I tell you that, you know, we don't preach on specific things, maybe, or there's, I love the mother's day sermon, the father's day sermon. Many of you were complimentary. I appreciate that. Those are good things for us to consider. The Bible says, be a proper mother, be a proper father. But some people say, what is it? When the preacher thinks about what to preach, what should always be at the heart of the message? And that is the gospel. That is the gospel. Peter preached the message of Jesus. You killed him, God raised him. That's the message of the gospel, and that's exactly what Peter says when he has his first opportunity, he stands up and he speaks the gospel. And while, again, I think it's fine to have some sermons on other topics or things that we deal with, may I and others and we always be first to the gospel. There's one other quote that's used here from Charles Spurgeon uh, that's used in this particular material for an illustration. Charles Spurgeon is quoted as saying, When we preach Christ crucified, we have no reason to stammer or stutter or hesitate or apologize. There is nothing in the gospel of which we have any cause to be ashamed. You know what's difficult? What's difficult is that we know that it's going to offend some people, as Paul says as well, Right? The message that this is what one must do doesn't always jive with the world or what they've always heard, and it's offensive. Or someone says, don't tell me to quit doing that. Don't tell me to change my life. I want to live how I want to live, and so they're not willing to hear it. But ultimately, if we're honest, we do not have to be ashamed of the gospel. There should be no clarification. There should be no stammering or stuttering. Well, what about this? Or try No, we should preach simply Jesus and him crucified. As we conclude the lesson this afternoon, I'd like to challenge you with one thought. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Acts chapter 9. And this will be our final point, our final passage this afternoon. Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. Acts 9, 15 and 16. You remember that here is where Saul has the moment on the road to Damascus. He's told what he should do that he should arise and go into the city. And notice in verses 15 and 16 that the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. I think I was a little misleading there, I didn't mean to be but that is the Lord's answer to Ananias and Ananias is to go say those things to Saul who will become Paul so I didn't mean to misspeak there if if I said it incorrectly but the Lord says to Ananias go and tell Paul these things that Paul would take the message of Christ to the Gentiles when we think about Paul's message of the gospel here's one way in which he refers to the gospel and here's my question to you is it My gospel. Paul, this for Paul, this was personal. Several times he indicates this by saying, My gospel or our gospel. Well, wait a minute, Paul. Were you putting yourself in the place of Jesus? Were you claiming to be the one who died on the cross? No, no, not at all. But it's personal. It is my gospel. Again, I didn't give Charles any suggestions, but I appreciate him going through and doing it. But singing that song that we sang, into our hands, the gospel is given. Can we go a little further and say into my hands, each one of us. Into my hands, the gospel is given. Into my hands is given the opportunity. Is that the way you live? Or as we've mentioned even on Wednesday night in our invitation, is it secondary? Or is it in the third place? Or is it? in the last place. You see, I'm a husband. I'm a father. I might be a coach at one time. I might have all these other roles, but the gospel comes towards the end. I believe in the gospel, but I don't want to make it my gospel. Into our hands, the gospel is is given, and may we say, as Paul does, that it is my gospel, and I'm going to live it out. And I'm going to share it with others. I'm going to defend it. Because I have believed it and I have obeyed it, I'm going to defend it and I'm going to preach it. I dare say that it probably consumed their life in many ways. We know the commitment the disciples made and others made to following Jesus. But think about others in the New Testament, specifically the book of Acts. As the church is beginning and then growing, I think they made it their mission. I think they made it their gospel. Not just a segment, not just a fraction, but it was them. It was part of their life. And may we challenge ourselves to do the same thing. We're about to sing a song of encouragement in just a moment. Maybe you've never obeyed the gospel. We obey the gospel by participating with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. We rise just as he rose to walk in newness of life. We can be added to the church and we can begin to live faithfully. Maybe your issue, if you have one this afternoon, might be that you've not lived out the gospel, that you say, well, it's not my gospel. That's okay. We've been blessed with an opportunity here. Maybe you need to make a change to to recommit, to commit again to serving Christ with all of your being, making it your life. We are thankful for this opportunity. We're thankful to encourage one another and to encourage you as we stand together and as we sing.